0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world, and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello. I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I for one know that they are a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian Mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. how my good friends i hope you're doing well today thanks so much for dropping by again you might call this one a world of murder mystery and legend because we're stepping out of the appalachian mountains to look at one that just plain needs telling now we'll be going over to the rocky mountains for this one and yeah you you can tell that i got a thing for mountains i guess can't you but it's about a man who's Give a damn got busted to the point of where he went over to his F-box and didn't have a daggum F to give for anything. As far as he was concerned, he needed some skin off somebody's rear end to make things right, and he was going to take it the hard way. Now, I remember when this happened, but I never got around to researching what exactly did happen until now. So grab yourself a sit-down, and let me tell you about the Royal Rampage of Marvin Heemeyer. Marvin Hemmer was born on October 28, 1951. Of all days for it to take place, that was my grandfather's 46th birthday. Now Marvin was born in South Dakota, but lived in Grand Lake, Colorado, about 16 miles from Granby. Now, he was the owner of a couple of muffler shops back in South Dakota that he'd ended up leasing to another owner who, in turn, ran those businesses. Now, at this point... Marvin was a pretty successful guy who was doing pretty well for himself. Now, every now and then, somebody needs to get the heck away from it all, so he came to Grand Lake for a vacation to, and met a man named John Kleiner who was in the same type of business as he was. Now, John was looking for a property to start a new business in nearby Granby. Now, Marvin was a man who recognized business opportunity when he saw one, so he took up the torch and told John that he would find him a property, so they made a deal for that to happen and Marvin he would uh, go buy the property and flip it to John for of course a small profit that seems like a pretty good and simple deal don't it well Marvin found the property and that included a 3,000 square foot building that was a former concrete plant which had gone bankrupt he inquired about it with the real estate agent who highballed him of course on the price by pricing it to him about 110,000 now, as we get further into the tangled cluster of a mess, you'll see why this likely happened. But Marvin did more research on the property and then found out that it was probably to be auctioned off. And by his estimation, the property is worth more like 66000 at the most. Now, he also could find nobody that was interested in buying it as he was new to the area and didn't want to step on anybody's toes that, you know, he saw would be a bad thing and he didn't want to make any enemies right off the bat. So he shows up to auction date prepared to buy it for up to 66000 And when bidding began, another man, who he didn't know at the time, bid 40000 to start, but Marvin outbid him despite getting a stink eye from him and ended up getting the property at $50,000, which is... better than he thought it was worth so that was a good deal and immediately after the auction The man that was giving him the stink eye and bidding against him who had turned out was a man named Cody Docheff Who was the former owner stomped his little runt butt over and got in Marvin's face So he could berate him for buying his property He called Marvin every name in the book and was a general horse's ass to him now Marvin being a reasonable man who didn't want to ruffle feathers in the community, offered to sell the property back to him immediately for the what he just paid for it. But Mister Dolchiff told him to go get F because he probably needed it. And John Kleiner, well, he soon decided that he didn't want the property after all. So Marvin, after taking it in the shorts on the deal, kept it and decided to open a muffler shop in the building, and that's because that's what he does best. Now the poor man apparently didn't know with whom he'd screwed by doing such an audacious thing because everything that the man did was nothing but a fight from the get-go. Now To start with, the town of Granby wanted him to hook up to the town water and sewer system, which Marvin agreed to do. Heck, he loved the idea of being hooked up on town water and sewer systems. Uh, Then they told him that they didn't have an easement to bury the lines to accomplish the hookup, as they would have you know, bury the utilities across his neighbor's property, named, a neighbor named Gus Harris. Now, so, now well, Marvin, being a never-day-say-die guy, went to see Mr. Harris to offer to buy the property from for the right-of-way, or, you know, just the property enough to make the right-of-way for the utilities to go across. Now, he offered $17,500 for the easement, and I can tell you from experience uh, that that's a doggone good offer. Mr. Harris said that the price would be 20000 and just to be an a-hole. Now, Marvin thought that he may as well buy the whole property just to get it over with, so he made an offer to Mr. Harris for $270,000 for the whole thing. Mr. Harris turned it down, and instead, he turns around and sells the property to Cody Dosha for $250,000. Now, apparently, Mr. Dolcif must have been the Al Capone Grammy or something. I don't know, but somehow, and I'm not sure how he did it, but despite it all, Marvin was still able to operate a muffler shop and decided to diversify his business by constructing a building to be used for boat storage, where folks could rent a space to store their boats. Now this soon became a you know success for Marvin as the unit was full within a year. Now one day, Marvin notices that. Cody Doseff was standing uh, his squirted little butt over on the former Gus Gus Harris property watching as the workers were pouring footage for a building. Now He soon found out that he planned to open a concrete factory there. This construction would block Marvin's access to his muffler shop and boat storage so he hired a lawyer to contest the construction which was moving forward without any permits whatsoever. Now His lawyer Stan Dietz assured him that the concrete factory would never fly when the city council voted the next time because the area wasn't properly zoned for such a thing. No, for that type of business at least. And, you know, because the price was right on his retainer as well, he would see to it that everything was taken care for an additional hourly, hourly billing rate, of course. Now, yeah. a few days later, Marvin was fined by the town official for having cars and debris on his property and uh, with the intestinal fortitude to dare question or for having the intestinal fortitude to dare question the powers that be about what the heck was going on. Now the cars were cars that he was putting mufflers on for the love of Mike. Uh, He was pretty much pissed as he watched the town official walk away right through the illegal construction site next door nearly tripping over a piece of rod iron sticking up out of the ground from the concrete footers on his way out. And uh, there Marvin there, asked a few more questions from the government about saving your livelihood. Now, Patrick Breer from the local newspaper even got hold of the story and printed a picture of the cars and debris on Marvin's property, complete with the foundation of the illegal concrete factory sticking up in the background of the picture. Now, Marvin made several attempts to sell the property back to Cody Dosha for Less than its appraised value, but Mr. Dosef wouldn't even make a counter offer or talk to him about it. Now, this was told by Marvin himself, of course. Now, Cody disputes that, but I think he's full of shit as a Christmas turkey from what I've been looking at. But now, Marvin was regarded as a pretty decent guy who just worked his business and tried his hardest not to cause no trouble. According to a neighbor, he had lived in town for about 10 years then and his friends stated that he had no relatives in the granby grand lake area as he'd ever been married or had any children so john baldry who was a friend of Marvin's, said that he was a likable person marvin's brother ken stated that uh, he would bend over backwards for people and didn't want to cause any trouble for anybody now while many people described him as a nice guy Christy Baker claimed that Marvin was a maniac and threatened her husband after refusing to pay for what she called an unnecessarily mu- unnecessary muffler repair. She said her husband later paid Marvin $124 to put the quietus on the feud. But Marvin Haymar's muffler shop in Granby, Colorado, by most indications, was a very reputable place to take your car for that type of repair, and all was well in Marvin's world, pretty much. Until, and uh, as we always say, there's that until, or the, there's either an until or a but, one or the other. Then the day the city council decided to approve the construction of the concrete factory in the lot across from Marvin's shop, heck, they even rezoned just for that one piece of property for just that business, which was by their own written laws illegal. A process whereby you, they, as usual, the government blinded by the thoughts of. Whatever the heck they want is going through gave less than a half a damn about the effect it would have on anything or anybody surrounding the factory. We're in charge. Heck with the plebes. they thought. Screw the construction and the founders of this country. uh, We'll do whatever we please and let it be written, let it be done. Sounds familiar. Yep. And they ask us why hillbillies stay in the hills. But as we said... The approval blocked the only access to Marvin's muffler shop and his boat storage unit, which were his only sources of livelihood. But to heck with him, what the government says goes, he can just do without. Marvin and his lawyer petitioned to stop the construction, which ended in a request being thrown out of court. As the only other property owned by Cody Dosef was the property that sat right next to the judge's property in the case who was on the case and would likely end up being where the concrete factory would go if he didn't approve it to go next to Marvin's. So the judge had it out for Marvin, too. He was one of those types that forces what he deems to be good for society down other people's throat, but just, you know, don't put it in his backyard. Now Marvin then paid his lawyer more money to petition to have a new access road built and even bought all the heavy machinery needed to do it himself. Surely the government was that was for the people would have no trouble approving such a thing, he thought, especially if it wasn't going to cost him a gum dime. So he draws the same judge and is laughed out of court and told he couldn't build a road there. Now, the area just isn't zoned for that, he was told. Now, the country Creek Factory went to heck right up in a blatant disregard of any effect it would have on Marvin's business or anybody else in the area, and on top of it all, when the factory was built it literally permanently cut off the city's water and sewage access to marvin's property and then finally to ice the cake the government then set up and uh, fined marvin for the whole dang not having the town water and sewer system situation that they created the government had left the, the poor man with absolutely nothing and gave less of a shit whether they, he existed or not now i guess in their eyes he was just supposed to curl up and die as, long as they got their way and called the shots just do as they say and starve there marvin but marvin now with absolutely nothing left to lose chose a course of action that would at least cost the city the amount of money that they costed him he retired to his little shed and began writing on the walls and recording audio tapes of what he planned to do and why in one recording marvin could be heard saying God built me for this job. He also said it was God's plan that he not be married or have a family so that he could be in the position to carry out such a thing. I think God will bless me to get the machine done, to drive it, and to do the stuff that I have to do. God bless me in advance for the task that I'm about to undertake. It is my duty. God has asked me to do this. It's a cross I'm going to carry, and I'm carrying it in God's name. He also wrote... I was always willing to be reasonable until I had to be unreasonable. Sometimes reasonable men have to do unreasonable things. Pitiful what the government can do to a person without so much as batting an eye, isn't it? Folks, this is about to get real bad. Stick around. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. So, what did Marvin do? He went to work, and for about 18 months, he modified the Komatsu D-355A bulldozer that he bought to build a new road and save his business with, with steel and concrete armor. To be able to see, he installed several video cameras linked to two monitors mounted in the vehicle's dashboard. Now, the cameras were protected on the outside by three-inch thick shields of clear bulletproof Lexan. Now, compressed air nozzles were even installed to blow dust away from the video cameras to keep them clean. Funny referred to it as the MK Tank. And uh, the homemade armor plating covered the cabin, engine, and parts of the tracks. In places, this armor was over one foot thick, consisting of 5,000 PSI concrete mix made by Cody Doshus himself, poured between half-inch shield uh, sheets of tooled steel this made the machine completely impervious to gunfire and pretty much impenetrable by any explosives he even added onboard fans and an air conditioning unit to keep cool while driving this now 85 ton hunk of moving destruction now he installed three gun ports fitted for a 50 caliber rifle a 308 semi-automatic rifle and a 22 long rifle all fitted with a half inch thick steel plate protecting the one that would shoot with with them. Now, he wrote in his notes, It is interesting to observe that I was never caught. This was a project lasting over a year and a half in time, and he was surprised that several of his friends who visited him during the building of his tank never noticed anything, even with all of it hooked up on a crane sitting right there in the middle of his shed while they sat around playing poker. Now, finally, on June fourth, two 2004, Marvin finally headed up to his adenoids with the government that he was going to, to the point where he was going to be all prayed up and ready to go with the Almighty, and he climbed into his killdozer, and he used a homemade crane that he'd built to lower the steel armor into place over the cockpit and engine, and there wasn't even a hatch to get out through. Now, he fired up the engine and drove right through the wall of his muffler shop. He next headed for the concrete plant. Uh, he he'd be damned if a concrete plant, of all things, was going to still be there when he was done. But he drove through the concrete plant several times, completely leveling the whole structure. He even uprooted some of the footers. Now, Cody Doshif was running around like a banty rooster on crack, kicking the tank, screaming, and cussing as Marvin fired shots at his feet to make him dance. Now, Marvin must have thought, well, how's that for your tax revenue, you overblown stuffed shirt SOBs? But... Then he must have thought that these government people could do this to anybody and any time they please, but not if they don't have a place to do it from. So he headed for town hall, cutting a swath of destruction through town as he went. Now, within a few minutes, he had reduced it to a pile of dust along with the library where they used to hold meetings by, of the, town, by the town officials to discuss things like building concrete plants and stuff like that. Now, it was then that he remembered that the local newspaper had said some nasty things about him, since it seemed to be going smoothly as it was, with the police not being able to do a thing to stop him, despite three attempts to blow him up and more than 200 rounds of ammunition being fired at it. Uh, he headed over to the offices of the local newspaper, running over trucks, cars, lamp posts, taking out power telephone poles and gas lines, driving through the brand new bank that financed the concrete factory and destroying it along the way. It was said that he avoided actually running over people and tried to miss them and anybody he didn't have a rift with. It appeared that he was just intent on destroying property. And destroying property is just what he did when he arrived at the newspaper offices. It took all of about 15 minutes to reduce the whole thing to the ground with newspapers fluttering through the air as he just kept right on going. Now, he must have realized as the police had contacted the governor to seek an order to use a missile to blow the tank up that he needed to send a real message to the morons in power. That's when it occurred to him exactly how to do that. He then pointed his MK tank directly in the direction of the mayor's house. This time, he went as the crow flies. He didn't follow streets. He cut a stru- straight swath of destruction over vehicles through buildings straight as a stick to the mayor's house and reduced it to a pile of toothpicks as the mayor's wife stood there watching on, yelling and screaming at him. Now, Checking that one off the list, he then remembered a hardware store owned by another man named named in his lawsuit that it failed. Uh, so he lined it for that one next. But this time, p- police said, Received their response from the government concerning the missile strike, and the answer was no. It'd be too dangerous to detonate something like that in a residential area. Now, the officer dropped a flashbang down a grenade or flashbang grenade down the bulldozer's exhaust pipe and tried to do something with that, but it didn't have any effect on it whatsoever. The local and state patrol, including SWAT team, walked around behind the bulldozer. I remember seeing that on TV, and they was trying to shoot through any cracks in the armor and it had absolutely no effect whatsoever either. The whole thing was completely impervious to gunshots. Now, they tried to take out the cameras with gunshots, but it couldn't penetrate the three-inch bulletproof Lexan covering them. At one point, under Sheriff Glenn Traynor climbed on top of the bulldozer and rode it like a Bronco Buster trying to figure out a way to get a bullet down in the, that gum monster so he could stop it, but he was forced to jump off after being dang near killed by a fallen piece of building. Now, can you imagine how helpless they must have felt? I wonder if any of them ever wondered what was happening. It was due but to any of their bosses making the decisions around town. But by the time he arrived at Gamble's hardware store, he reduced 12 bits of the town's structures completely to rubble. Barely one brick left on top of the other in every case. Now, he never slowed down as he hit, laid waste to the hardware store. This was where he first... In, only thing ever went wrong, the whole plan went wrong. The hardware store had a basement in it, and as Marvin tore the building a new rear end, one of the tracks of the dozer fell through the floor and became stuck. The SWAT team saw the opportunity and rushed onto the tank to find that there was no hatch, so they couldn't do a blame thing to stop him as he continued to try to, and dang near succeeded at trying to get the bulldozer unstuck. Now, police were able to fire into the engine, and it finally began to leak. Fluids, but Marvin still wouldn't quit. Just as it seemed that he was about to get the bulldozer loose uh, and uh, continued the assault, the well, the track broke off and fell through the basement. The track broke off the um, wheel, the, what they call the wheels. They call them tracks on bulldozers. It broke off and fell into the basement, and that was it. He couldn't do no more. The bulldozer couldn't move without the track but SWAT team members then heard the engine shut down and it was quiet for just a second and then a single gunshot wound, gunshot came from inside the armor, but they still had no way to get inside the machine's cockpit to assess the situation. Police first used explosives and attempt to remove the steel plates, but after the third third one failed, they had just slowly cut through them with the doxycytoline t- cutting torch. Now, Grand County Emergency Management Director Jim Hullihan stated that authorities were able to access and remove Mr. Hemeyer's body at about 2 a.m. on June 5th. Marvin was dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The attack lasted for about two hours and seven minutes, damaging 13 buildings, knocking out natural gas service, destroying the town hall, the concrete plan, and destroying part of the utility service center. Despite all the damage, nobody but Marvin Heemeyer died. The damage was estimated to be at around $7 million. To take away the 300000 Marvin had lost in dealing with all the bureaucrats, and he came out $6.6 6 to the good. Now, according to Grand County Commissioner James Newberry, emergency dispatchers used the reverse 911 system to notify the <clears throat> residents of the rampage, and they were able to clear out of town. People who stand by Marvin contended that he made a point not to hurt anybody. Ian Doherty, (coughs) a bakery owner, said Marvin went out of his way not to hurt anybody. The sheriff's department, on the other hand, said that the fact that nobody was injured was not due to good intent so much as good luck. They added that Mr. Hamer had installed two rifles and firing ports at the inside of the bulldozer and had fired fifteen bullets from his rifle at a power transformers and propane tanks. If those tanks had ruptured and exploded, anybody within a half mile could have been up in flames with them. Now, I, being in the engineering field, think it's a bit of a stretch, but you know to say that. But I didn't see the size of the tanks either, so and I'm not going to sit here and defend Marvin, but. I will say this, when people are pushed to their breaking point, the people doing the pushing might want to take note that some people, when pushed to the point that they have nothing left to lose, just might get mad enough to push back and leave a mark doing it. Now, folks, I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that needed telling. If you have, please rate and review the podcast on whatever media you're listening. And don't forget to follow us, please. Come on over to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast, where we talk Appalachian or anything else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Hopefully this congestion's cleared up and I'll sound a little better, but uh, I will see you then.